You are listening to a podcast from The National. On Easter Sunday, Christians gathered for one of the most important religious holidays of the year. But what unfolded next would shake Sri Lanka and shock the world. I'm James Haynes-Young, the foreign editor of The National, and this week we're talking about the terror attacks in Sri Lanka that left 359 people dead and nearly 500 wounded. A little before 9am on Sunday, suicide bombers set off near-simultaneous explosions in three packed churches and three upscale hotels. Within minutes, scores were dead, but the toll didn't stop rising for nearly two days. ISIS has since claimed the attack, and while it remains unclear the extent of their involvement, experts say it appears that it was at least inspired, if not directed by the terror group. In the near 200-year-old Roman Catholic St. Sebastian Church, in the small town of Nagumbo, just north of the capital of Colombo, 104 people were killed and the religious building decimated. This is 26-year-old Minuri Fernando, who saw the blast. There was a sudden explode. Came and uh, after that, there was a one-minute silence. The whole environment was in a silence. So after one minute only, there were like a lot of screaming and the, there were a lot of noises. People scream and they came out of the church with a bleeding. So I saw everything into my eyes. In the wake of the attacks, the government has brought in a state of emergency, allowing police greater powers to investigate the plot. But it's also become clear that at least some officials had been made aware of a specific plan weeks earlier. Well, there was definitely a lapse of intelligence and uh, the government has, you know, we have to take responsibility. It appears they failed to act on the intelligence reports. Politicians have been divided since a political crisis last year in which the president tried, unsuccessfully, to oust the prime minister. It appears that this lingering animosity between the two leaders may have played a role in the intelligence failings. Now, in Sri Lanka, many are angry. They want to know who knew what and when. I'm joined by Jack Moore, Deputy Foreign Editor of The National, who was on the ground this week reporting on the aftermath of the attacks. So, Jack, you were on the ground in the city of Nagumbo, just north of, of the capital and the site of one of the most deadly uh, explosions on Sunday. Tell me a bit about how the community reacted. So driving through Nagumbo, the streets were lined with white flags to commemorate the dead on a day of mourning in the city. And approaching the church, the Christian community had obviously come together to pay their respects and remember the dead killed on Sunday. People were handing out water priests were talking to other members of the community, giving interviews to the media to express their sorrow, but also the forgiveness for the attackers. It was everyone had come together in the city, but also from outside of the city. So people would travel from Colombo and, and other areas of Sri Lanka to come and pay their respects. Buddhist monks had come to show solidarity with the Christian community. And there was a real feeling of camaraderie at St. Sebastian's Church. And so this is it's a largely Catholic community. Um, it's not the only church in the area. A lot of the people congregate there on a weekly basis. So so the attacks really, even for those not at the church on Sunday or, or didn't have immediate family, it really impacted the whole community. It really did. So the Christian community has largely stayed out of the troubles that Sri Lanka has faced. It's been at peace in the gumbo for, for decades. But these attacks were a direct assault on the Christian community and the people there were shocked and did not understand why they had been specifically targeted. They say that they do not harm other communities, they do not target other communities and they do not 
see why they were the center of this tragedy. But obviously government, government ministers have said that this could be a retaliation to the Christchurch attacks in New Zealand on two mosques. That remains unconfirmed. But the people that we spoke to in the gumbo, uh, there was a lot of f forgiveness willing to be handed to the attackers. So some of the priests we, spoken to, we spoke to said that, you know, we have to forgive these people. They, we have to give them the chance to repent and that it's not their fault that they did this and we should allow them to be given a fair hearing, which I was surprised at. You know, these guys had killed 104 people in the gumbo, 359 across the country, but the community was very willing to forgive what happened. And you know, down the road from the church, about a mile away, was a funeral, and a Sinhalese community was praying for a guy called Lionel, a 75-year-old man who went to the church on his own. I spoke to his uh, nephew, and he was, again, very forgiving of the attackers, and it was just very surprising and powerful to hear such forgiveness just two days after the loss of family members and people being killed in such an inhumane fashion. And, and Sri Lanka generally is, is a country divided between multiple sects, multiple religions, and multiple communities. Um, the Christian community is less than 10% of the population. You know, um, how have kind of sectarian tensions and religious tensions played out in the past, do you think? So since the Civil War, when the Tamil Tigers, the separatist terror group, was defeated by the Sri Lankan government, people have told me that Sri Lanka has lived in relative peace for the last decade. But there have been tensions between different groups. So Buddhist nationalists have expressed Islamophobic sentiment and have committed attacks against Muslim communities, burning shops, and so on. Buddhists accuse Muslims of vandalizing their statues, trying to convert children to Islam. There's a lot of mud that's slung either way. But what's interesting is that the Christian community just really hasn't been involved in this. It doesn't appear to have been involved in this. And what this threatens now, this attack on the Christian community, is rising anger in that community that really has stayed out of the sectarian and ethnic tensions in the country. Um, we spoke to a Christian taxi driver who tried to blame the whole Muslim community for what happened. He was very angry. We pointed out that you know, these were eight, eight or nine attackers and there might be a wider network behind it, but it's not the whole Muslim community that you can tarnish. But there are now reports of tensions rising and reprisals against the Muslim community. And the Muslim community is very scared about what will happen next. So even in the gumbo, despite what we heard about forgiveness and you know, repentance, there have been reports of Muslim refugees in the city being bussed out of the city for fear that they will be attacked. There was one person, one resident of Nagumbo, whose landlord has told them to leave, basically, because they are Muslim, get out. Um, so the Muslim community is in fear, in both Colombo and Nagumbo, at being blamed for what was the, the work of a small radical cell. And you mentioned about the security operation, you know, that there were policemen lying in the streets. Um, this was also taking place in Colombo in the capital as well. I mean, throughout the week, we've seen um, controlled explosions taking place either um, in other locations or at some of the sites of the attacks. 
Um, you've seen police officers, you know, deployed right across the country. Um, tell me a bit about, first of all, the, the government response to the attacks uh, and, the, and the investigation into them, but also in how people across the country in the capital and elsewhere are feeling this week. Yep. So as soon as we arrived into Colombo's international airport, it was a crazy scene, really. There was a, a queue, you know, two and a half hour long queue, um, wait for a taxi to just to get into Colombo because of the, the curfew that had been imposed by the government. Now, the curfew was imposed, rightly so, because the search was still ongoing for suspects who could be out there and it's to protect people's safety. They'd also banned social media, Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter from from use and you know, experts have said that this actually was problematic because it caused more actually more misinformation because of the vacuum of official communication that people can access from their phones and from their desktops but yet yeah, driving into the city at 5am in the morning was an interesting sight I was there in November for the political crisis and the roads so congested driving from the airport to the city but this time under the curfew, it's completely empty. Had a straight road the whole way, and it was fine. It was just really weird to see the city on lockdown and it to be so, so empty. And then in the city in the day, when it came back to life, it was just very tense. Uh, it was quieter than usual, and police were much more visible, security were much more visible, armed. And even when we went to St. Anthony's Church in Colombo, police just were rushing down the road because of reports of a van filled with explosives, potentially. Uh, bomb squad came in, uh, minesweepers, and people are running the other way. Um, locals were just very worried. So every time we would speak in passing to locals, they would say things like, we have a big problem here in Sri Lanka, IS, or, you know, just, or stay safe. They were just very conscious that to let us know that there's a problem that needs to be fixed or that we should keep ourselves safe and be careful out there because they were so scared that there are more attackers and more bomb blasts that could have gone off. And that, in part, is a testament to the sophistication of and the scale of the attack because they happen simultaneously in the morning, three of them, and more in the afternoon across the country. Just the fear that was spread was because of the nature of the attack. It wasn't just one bomb blast, but so many across such a wide area. So the feeling, even yesterday, four days on from the attack, the, the tension was still very high. We went to the airport and the officers, officers at the airport were at pains to say sorry to us and just to apologize for the situation and just that this isn't normal for Sri Lanka and, and that they just felt really bad that they thought we were tourists. They thought, felt bad that tourists had come to the city and were at threat. And the tourism industry is so important to Sri Lanka that a lot of people were trying to make sure that Western nationals or foreign nationals were okay because they want them to come back. They don't want them to to leave and hurt their own livelihood. So, yeah, it affected everyone across the country because it's going to affect not only the, the immediate families of the victims, but the people that work and live in Sri Lanka every day. But also the community, especially in Colombo, really rallied round as well. I mean, you reported on the blood banks and how thousands of people had come down to donate. Uh, tell us a bit about what the scenes were there. Yeah, so immediately after the attacks, 1,500 people went to Colombo's main blood bank and doctors there had to literally turn them away because 
they could not process enough units of blood. So people were just waiting around for hours and it was causing more complications for them having so many people there. So the day after we went to the blood bank and people were still turning up to give blood, even though the health service said that they had enough blood to help all of the wounded. And it just showed that the, the people felt that so strongly about these attacks and how they wouldn't let this affect Sri Lanka. They wanted to come and help their fellow countrymen and women and donate blood. And the people we spoke to were very sad and took the day off work to go and give their own blood. So it was, it was very interesting to see. I just came here to donate blood. Uh, having seen the carnage that happened yesterday, I uh, just wanted to do my bit in sort of uh, helping some people out. In uh, the, the only way I could, I mean, I, I thought this would be the best way if somebody would need. And my, uh, my blood group is a very rare one, B negative. So I thought I should somehow uh, contribute a bit. And there were scenes like this, you know, around Colombo and the Gombo, because while there are tensions right now under the surface, there was a big rally of support because of the scale of this attack. This is the biggest attack that's ever hit South Asia, let alone Sri Lanka, the biggest ever claimed by ISIS. But also the political response has been been quite interesting as well. I mean, you've got elements of the government accusing other elements of the government of knowing about this, of failing to act, of having been tipped off by Indian intelligence, by other, other reports, by even the community themselves. Uh, the Muslim leaders have said that they've reported one of the men that is believed to have been uh, behind the attacks. So so what's happening politically and why are the different groups in government so divided? So this is one of the biggest questions that's coming out of the attacks is why was it not stopped? How did the government know about this and did not do anything about it? Uh, there was a lot of anger among Sri Lankans about the government failing to stop this. When it was reported that Indian intelligence on April 4th passed a memo, a very specific memo with names, addresses, numbers of potential attackers. And then that was shared again on an April 11th by Sri Lanka's police chief. The government just did not act upon this. So as more details have emerged, it's become clear that the president, Sirisena, and the prime minister, Ranil Wickremesinghe, have been not communicating as best as they should be and that it, a security lapse may have taken place because of their political rivalry. So this goes all the way back to October and November with Sri Lanka's political crisis when Sirisena tried to oust the Prime Minister but the Parliament stepped in and prevented this from happening. Sirisena tried to replace him with the former warlord Mahinda Rajapaksa. When that failed, Wickremesinghe had to stay and be the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka, despite the President having tried to get rid of him. So for the next five months, they have been at loggerheads and Sirisena is angry that the Prime Minister is still in place that he doesn't want. So he's tried to keep him out of the loop. He's tried to sideline him while still in power. So the reports are that the Security Council of Sri Lanka, which reports to Sirisena, has been not inviting Wickremesinghe to these meetings where this briefing or memo from Indian intelligence would have been shared. On Sunday after the attacks, Wickremesinghe went to host the Security Council and called on members to gather, and they refused because Sirisena was on holiday and he was out of the country and they said, we only report to him. So Wickremesinghe says, 
I didn't know anything about this. I couldn't do anything. The president says, I didn't know anything about this. He's called for his police chief and the, d the defense minister to step down. Um, so he is, he hasn't not taken responsibility. He's passing the buck. Wigremesin's passing the buck. And experts say that basically their rivalry could have contributed to not only this attack happening, but actually the death toll being worse. So the attack could have started, but just not doing anything about it beforehand in terms of arresting some of the suspects meant there was more suspects on the streets ready to commit such a wide attack. Now, we went to a Muslim center in Colombo, uh, a group of Muslim scholars, and they knew about the leader of this small group. His name is Mohammed Zaharan, and they say that they've warned the government about him. They passed him, they passed the government his extremist videos that he posted on YouTube and Facebook. He'd amassed several thousand followers, and the government appeared to do nothing about it. Actually, what happened, there was an incident, two families from Sri Lanka, when the ISIS ideology started in international in Syria, two families migrated there. And from them, there was two youngsters who actually died there. So when this incident happened, it alerted us. There's something wrong here. There's some international connection is going on. Because we never promote, no our local preachers have said about it. So we worked very closely with government. Then government said there are many youngsters regarding this. So from that onwards, we have been helping and working with the intelligence service. And intelligence service brought down those two families to rehabilitate them. And we do not know. We have given enough information about the individual, so-called a person, individual name is coming up. You can pick up the name somewhere. But they, they have failed to this thing. So they knew about him, but they didn't do anything. And also locals where Mohammed Zaharan lived in his eastern city of Katankudi reported him about 15 times, according to uh, the people we spoke to at the Muslim Center. So not only did the government have knowledge from specific intelligence from a foreign intelligence service, it had reports from the Muslim community itself, which has its ear on the ground and was telling them about the extremist elements in its midst. And the government just did not do anything about it. And that's what's so galling. And people have actually said that the conduct by both the president and the prime minister amount to criminal negligence because by failing to do anything about this, 359 people have lost their lives when they knew about many of the attackers. And this is, this is not over, basically. So the political crisis that happened in November has stretched into, into these attacks, played a role in these attacks, potentially, and the fallout is yet to conclude fully. So we could see even men go from their positions. People below them are definitely going to lose their jobs. But it'll be very interesting to see how these two men will be able to work together now, even though they have been working badly together for the last five months, how they can do it after such a deadly attack that will live long in the memory of the country. So although investigations are still ongoing, it does seem that ISIS, uh, who have claimed credit for these attacks, had some involvement. We're just a sort of month or so since uh, the end of the battle against ISIS in Syria uh, was announced. They've now lost uh, pretty much all of their territorial control, which they once held across Iraq and Syria. But clearly, the ideology, the group, the organization is still around and it's still posing a deadly threat. What does this mean for the broader battle against ISIS around the world? So when ISIS released their claim for the Sri Lanka attacks, it was met by suspicion again because they tend to claim attacks when it's beneficial for them and don't, do not provide evidence 
of their involvement in these attacks, but the video that showed eight suspected attackers, at least one, um, against the ISIS flag showed that they were pledging allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and that they were at least inspired by the group. Now, the level of sophistication and scale of the attack, eight bomb blasts across the country, three on high-level targets in luxury hotels and free churches show that this was planned and funded. It doesn't, it's not cheap to create eight suicide bombs and detonate them across the country at the same time. So this shows, according to the government and according to experts, that actually this could be the work of an ISIS-inspired cell. One expert told me he believes it's the work of a new ISIS branch in Sri Lanka. Now, ISIS has lost its territory, but it has not lost its brand. And this year alone, it has claimed attacks across Africa and South Asia and Southeast Asia. So in the Philippines, in Burkina Faso, even in the DRC, now we're seeing it in Sri Lanka. This was just on such a huge level compared to the other attacks that it's now going to make people realize that ISIS is not over. It's still a global insurgency. And experts tell me that this is what they're trying to show. They're trying to pick up on local grievances, people with local knowledge, people like Mohammed Zaharan, who can exploit the situations in their countries. Now, and what I've been told is that Sri Lanka effectively dismantled after the 2009 end of the civil war, security-wise, and took their eye off the ball, and that they did not pay attention to radical Islamist elements in the country. They were focusing on the revival of Tamil separatism, and they did not pay attention to the warnings shown. So ISIS has managed to find, appears to have found people that can operate under the radar in Sri Lanka and carry out their aims, or at least by carrying out these attacks, pledge allegiance to the group and attribute it to the group, which helps its aims anyway, even if it did not direct them to attack these targets, but has inspired them to give it the responsibility for the attack. It still gives the group power without any territory. It still makes people fearful of the group that even without a shred of territory in the Middle East, they can kill 359 people across a country that has never experienced such an attack, that has a capable security service and has lived in peace for a decade after a brutal civil war. Ultimately, this shows that ISIS is not finished. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines on Apple Podcasts or any of your favourite podcasting apps. Follow more of our coverage on our website at thenational.ae. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young. Join us again next week.